BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning. This episode of the EdTech Podcast is sponsored by FormAssembly, a leading web form builder and data collection platform for colleges and universities. With its drag-and-drop interface, robust integrations and high standards of security and compliance, FormAssembly helps hundreds of customers in the higher education industry streamline data collection processes for students, staff and alumni. For more information about FormAssembly, visit formassembly.com forward slash edtech. This episode is also brought to you by Tez, the BET Global Wellbeing Partner. Tez are a global education business. They power schools and enable great teaching worldwide by creating intelligent online products and services to make the greatest difference in education. For more than 100 years, Tez have worked and grown in partnership with teachers and schools to become a global community of 13 million educators. Their innovative digital tools, software and services are used by school leaders in over 25,000 schools in more than 100 countries. So turn to TES for staff management, pupil management, safeguarding and training and together they'll help you succeed. Go to www.tes.com. Resilience is not just a, a um, you know, you can't talk yourself into being resilient. You have to sort of sleep live study and work all in the same room and it's just not it's not healthy i don't think and it's been pretty busy and i think what it's really really important from a from an educational technology perspective is to understand what kind of well-being we are referring to hi everyone how are you all doing at the time of recording this it's a few days until we can go in each other's gardens up to six people or two households and so I'm really looking forward to hopefully seeing my nephew after many many months and also my brother and one of my very good friends so some positives from the EdTech podcast. A big shout out to Bet for supporting this series and Form Assembly and Tez for supporting this episode and to our fantastic guests. This episode is all about learner well-being and we are covering how to define and measure well-being in the context of developing and using impactful edtech to support learner well-being and therefore learner success. This is all especially relevant given the impact of the pandemic, with over half of UK students surveyed by the National Union of Students saying their mental health has deteriorated or been affected negatively by COVID-19 and with only 20% of those students having sought mental health support. We explore the ambiguities in edtech, what's stressing students out and what's creating those systems of support, as well as looking into how educational settings can weave more social-emotional learning metrics into the usual approach of academic success. To kick off this episode, I asked Santiago Diosono Garcia, a former research associate at UCL and current research and evaluation lead at Couth, about what research into wellbeing was useful to consider for those developing edtech or using it. Couth is an online emotional wellbeing and research platform. 
Yeah, I guess the, um, the answer is not as simple as it looks like. Um, um, I, um, there is obviously um, a lot of people in the space uh, trying to build, um, um, let's say, positive interventions or positive computing interventions from chatbots mm -hmm. to, uh, um, um, to more like curriculum based uh, that has some psychological input or obviously social emotional learning. Um, um, studies um, that look at um, this specific component. But I guess that um, one of the main problems uh, that developers and, and researchers will find is about how difficult this well-being construct or concept is for people. And it's been for research to unlock and to understand the meaning of well-being um, uh, it's, been, it's been a problem of, of, of the research community for, for, for quite a long time. So we know, we know that well-being is uh, uh, complex. Uh, it's interrelated with other things. And it may actually mean different things to different people. And that complicates uh, um, how we can work with this well-being construct uh, in a digital platform, for instance. Um, so um, one, one thing that may be surprising, but, no, um, uh, but it's a curiosity about well-being, is that you know, it's, it's so loose in terms of um, uh, how concrete well-being can be that um, there's not even an agreement on how it should be spelled, which I think it already tells us um, that we're getting into an interesting uh, construct to try to measure or to try to improve, because uh, there's yeah. not even an agreement on the way we should uh, write it down in paper. Uh, some people say well-being without uh, a iPhone, and some people say well-being should have an iPhone. Um, um, there's also multiple definitions of well-being. And I think what it's really, really important from, a, from an educational technology perspective is to understand what kind of well-being we are referring to. So um, uh, we know, for instance, that there are two main approaches to well-being uh, or two main perspectives. One is the hedonic approach to well-being, which basically thinks that you know, everything is about uh, avoiding pain and increasing uh, pleasure. Uh, and it may be related with the concept of happiness to a certain extent. And then uh, a, a bit more introspective approach, which is the eudaimonic approach. They are all Latin words uh, that defines uh, well-being in terms of self-realization, taking perspectives of a person who may be fully functioning um, and basically you know, realizing the human flourishing and the human uh, potential. And then another type of differentiation that people do around well-being is internal or subjective well-being, which will be, you know, the psychological well-being associated with one person's characteristics and features, and the external objective well-being that is developed from an external perception of, of, of one's evaluation of human society. So, for instance, this could be, you know, your conditions of residence, your educational access, your natural and social environment, your civil rights, safety, and things like that. So we need to kind of like have a laser focus on what kind of well-being we're trying to refer to, what kind of mm -hmm. approach we are taking to that well-being, and then start looking at how we can use it for our ethic tool, um, how, how that's it match our theory, and how it can be implemented inside of our platforms and our solutions. Definitely, there is a lot of um, um, systematic reviews on the topic of well-being. I think uh, measurement is something that has been a focus on. So mm -hmm. you have, for instance, a very interesting uh, systematic review of 99 assessments of well-being 
for adults. Um, uh, it's it's done by Linton Deeper and Medina Lara uh, in 2016. You basically have a compendium of 99 instruments and their characteristics and what th themes of well-being cover. Um, they actually um, um, devise the themes on well-being in global well-being, mental well-being, social well-being, physical well-being, spiritual well-being, activities and functioning, and uh, personal circumstances. So you have a very interesting breakdown of well-being and yeah. which instruments could be useful for your tool, for instance. Then there is um, another research, war on 2012 developed a set of recommendations of how to think about measuring well-being because i guess you know all us edtech designers think on well-being as part of the design potentially um uh, but then at some point if we are claiming that our uh, edtech tool or our, our you know our edtech innovation is supposed to increase well-being sooner or later the people that are commissioning our tools or either teachers or, or, or head leaders may actually uh, want to see some evidence around that. So I think it's really important to have um, some papers that can guide you about, well, you know, how to think about measuring well-being. So War in 2012 developed a very good paper and it looks at different angles of, of concepts that you may want to consider. So for instance, you know, if you're having a psychological or physiological or social emphasis in your intervention, mm -hmm. this is really important to um, um, consider. So you know that you are selecting tools and assessments that are actually covering this, this, this emphasis in this area. If you're building, for instance, a physical education training and your well-being is going to imp improve because of the physiological functioning mm. and benefits of the exercise, it doesn't make much more sense that you pass on a questionnaire that looks at subjective well-being from the perspective of, of your psychological kind of like states and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then other things to consider is the scope of measurement. So uh, interventions may help um, immediately to um, increase the um, increase the well-being of that person, or interventions may actually um, uh, improve or intend to impact in a more long-term uh, point of view of of well-being. So, when do we measure and how do we measure it? How um, uh, granular we need to get into that measurement? It's um, extremely extremely important to have the right type of evaluation for your intervention. So I'll give you an example of what I'm currently working on and uh, We are developing a single session measurement. Um, and this single session measure is intended to um, um, see any change uh, before and after one only chat session. So this is a very, very, very specific and immediate change in well-being. So we are looking at um, effective scales uh, with positive and negative emotions to see if that change correlates with our tool in order to later on validate it and become a clinical tool that not only being used in Kuth, but also be used across other mental health services. And for this one, we needed to look at that kind of like very short time space. And actually we had a hard time to find um, uh, well-being measurements that are actually looking at the moment rather than, you know, three weeks down the line when you administer the questionnaire or maybe a month uh, down the line. So sometimes you're going to find as an edtech 
developer and, 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 and entrepreneur and innovator that the measure that you're trying to achieve may not exist yet in research. And that poses a challenge because normally um, stakeholders and, and, and the people that buy wants to see the evidence and that evidence tend to be uh, asked to be from a standardized questionnaire or a questionnaire that is validated in the scientific community. And for this new context, this online context, not everything is being validated. And many uh, researchers are taking the step of plugging in standardized questionnaires in a context that is digital and is new completely for the, for the initial design that that assessment or, or, or kind of like tool had. So it's important to validate it between contexts and see that it works uh, in a similar fashion from the physical domain or, you know, just handing in those questionnaires in the classroom works very similar um, um, to when you hand these, those questionnaires in a digital environment, which in many cases will be, but not in all of the cases. So this is an interesting um, um, area to consider, I think. And then um, the other that may not simplify things is examining ambivalence. So people may feel good and bad at the same time. So when you are measuring well-being, what are you actually trying to measure? Because if you're trying to measure the psychological state of someone in that moment, you know, people may have a bad day, but that doesn't mean that they are having a, 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 a bad level of well-being or a bad quality of life. One person who has been working on trying to crack the problem of well-being, measurement and learner success is Tej Samani, founder at Performance Learning. Plex has been servicing schools and parents for now uh, close to eight years. The first, the first product that we launched, um, which was our um, assessments, which early identify the behavior, the perception and the skills that currently uh, are either a strength or an area a pupil needs to improve on. And since then, we've been building up on it. I asked Tej how performance learning approaches emotional resilience and learning performance through their technology software, Plex. Um, we've been working very hard on our machine learning um, algorithm. Um, as you know, with the work that I've been doing with, with IOE over the years and, and UCL and, and, and really the, the papers that I've started to publish in AI Ed and um, has been the latest sort of enhancement of the technology to not only identify uh, the social, emotional, mental health, the metacognition, the self-regulatory, the, the, the learn-to-learn approach within the learner, but also um, be able to intervene and, and coach intelligently the learner through you know, multiple um, short snippet pathways. So we've, if, if we've identified, for example, that the learner is particularly tired, struggling with their sleep, yeah. Plex has now got a series of really fun, intuitive learning pathways to help them with their sleep straight through to um, if we've highlighted, if Plex has highlighted in the initial assessment that there's some areas of retaining and recalling information that they're struggling with, um, that's that's now highlighted as being um, an area of focus. They can then use their micro learning pathways within Plex to, to, to train the learner in being able to, to deal with and, and, and and sort of upskill themselves in the areas that the systems identify them needing help in. And then our sort of our mission over the last six, seven years has been correlating that to direct uplifts and academic performance. Um, so as, as you're familiar with, I've just been on this 
crusade now. So overall, it's been 10 years, but I've just been on this crusade now, if you could call it that, to really place the social, emotional, mental health, the metacognition of the learner at the forefront of their learning. You know, when we're talking about well-being, it's uh, actually understanding what form of well-being we are trying to attain and um, how to measure improvements in that, which has been a sort of a tricky aspect of this, especially for those um, working on edtech in this area. Um, and I know that if we go right back to the beginning of you developing performance learning and sort of research with Oxford Brooks, you had this sort of systematic definition and, you know, you refined sort of what forms of psychological and behavioural dimensions that you were addressing. And I just yes. wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you go about defining well-being and how you go about measuring that as well. Great question. So the the definition that I, I, I went into the initial research of this not really having a core definition of what well-being is other than the the five and a half years I then when I left school competed as a as a professional tennis player where well-being was very much based on the notion of mental toughness and getting to a point within yourself that you could you could physically mentally handle demand and load so I would in the early stages define well-being Really two simple categories. One, can I meet the demands of what is in front of me? And can I recover after those demands have been either executed well or executed poorly? In other words, energy. And having had those two definitions from, from day one, what it enabled me to do is sort of systematically, as you've said, work backwards to say, well, what are the constructs of uh, being able to manage, let's say, obviously, academia as an example, the demands of my subject. So in other words, how can some pupils who uh, are uh, displaying resilience outside of the classroom, you know, I would show you, show you hundreds of examples of pupils who, who come from, you know, really challenging backgrounds who are incredibly resilient because they're turning up to school in the first place but academically are not performing to their capability and often get labelled as being not resilient enough. So context really here is the most important part. Mm -hmm. In terms of them being able to measure, the measurement of this came about three years after we actually had a defining framework of what we believe resilience to be, of what we, we believe then what well-being should be. And I broke it down into, into, into a further two categories here. And, and if we're generalizing here, Sophie, I call it intellect and emotion. Uh, and intellect, genuinely from our perspective, means, well, look, you know, I've got some tasks. I've got to learn how to solve an area of the trapezium, or I've got to learn about Henry VIII, or I've got to learn about steps of the carbon cycle. Do I have the skill intellectually to be able to take in that information, apply it, structure it, analyze it, retain it, recall it, sit an exam, display understanding, debate about it, answer questions about it? Right? All the usual day-to-day -day activities in a school. Then, do I then have the emotional capability to be able to cope with stress, strain, pressure? And again, even if you're going into stress and strain, we broke down the components that often we experience stress as individuals. But when stress turns into strain, that's when we get into trouble. 
That's when we start to burn out. So we broke that down even further and started to look at during the early research phases, what are the changes in the body's autonomic nervous system? What are the changes in my prefrontal cortex activity? How am I entering into slightly more higher frequency brainwave frequencies when I'm experiencing stress in an exam? What are the fluctuations in my parasympathetic and sympathetic activity in my nervous system when I'm experiencing the stress? Because ultimately, it is a whole body approach to managing that. Now, in academia, that's not done. In, in, in the sporting context, that's like waking up and having breakfast. Every athlete will undergo a level of psychosomatic assessment. They will undergo a level of, of physical strain within their body. And then they'll have a plethora of psychologists coaching them. So having broken down the fact that, well, I know my ability to manage my time, my ability to retain and recall information, my ability to recover sleep, which gives me energy to sustain all of it, and my ability to diffuse anxiety and stress and nerves because they're inevitable because I'm being tested all the time at school, are the bedrock pillars of what, if I can execute successfully, are... Uh, in essence, will turn me into a, an intellectually resilient learner, an emotionally resilient learner. The measurement of that then came after defining those four areas, which I did with Brooks, uh, with the university. The measurement of that then came through um, what was then a further three and a half years worth of research with, uh, and this is where we then started working with um, you know, our mutual friends at the IOE, where we wanted to create um, and it, it really, it really it sprung off from Brooks, where I then wanted to create a set of questions through an assessment. Because as you know, Sophie, schools don't measure this stuff, right? We judge performance based on past performance, mm-hmm. my previous exam results. And to me, that's not a, you know, that's not a valid indicator. The most important person in all of this is the pupil. Why aren't we asking the pupil about how they felt? Why aren't we capturing that? So the measurement of this came when we were able to define a set of questions and responses that would intelligently assess these four pillars within a pupil. We now actually have seven um, that we've identified that we've added to the added to the original four. And I guess it's just been, um, well, it has been an iterative process to say, okay, we know we've defined the skill. So remember my earlier triad that I mentioned of behavior, skill, and perception? We'd identified the skill that the learner needed to have. Right. So I need to be able to manage my time. I need to be able to retain information. Then it was a case of how do I believe uh, my ability is perception in my ability to execute the skill? And then that third data point was created, which is perception, of which we look at eight indicators of perception. So it's been an evolving process that we've been able to then create effectively the technology to be able to measure uh, and track over a term and then ultimately correlate to improvements in exam results and and, and, and test scores. Tej talked about putting students at the heart of their own well-being. One student vocalising the learner experience of well-being to try and improve services is Charlie James, a student at Southampton University and award-winning learning technologist with a background in further education. Her university course started in 2020 a year where things were quite different to what she was expecting. And she has since taken on representative roles in the Students' Union to mediate the student experience and try to improve support. Part of this includes working as an admin on the University of Southampton Discord server, which has over 1,200 members. 
For those who don't know, Discord is a voice, video and text communication service used by over 100 million people to hang out and talk with their friends and communities. Here she talks candidly about her experience at university, why she's trying to improve support services and the student experience and what she wants from university leaders to make things better. I've been looking after a Discord server since last May, I think, but I've been proper active on it since maybe July, August, and we have over 1,300 students on it, and they're all just, they're not happy, and I'm trying my best to help everyone, but I just feel like we need our representation to be helping us, and I kind of want to go in and make sure that's happening. I think the best thing that universities and colleges and schools can do is actually ask the students who are experiencing Mm. the, the mental health worries, because I at my university we have buddy schemes we have a waiting list for counselling we have self-help resources but students are still at home in their halls alone worried depressed don't want to reach out like I can't give the here's the answer to all of your problems that can only come from the student because each student has their own independent way of managing their mental health and nine times out of ten all they need is just someone to listen to them, just to sort of vent it all out and just say, okay, here are my worries. Mm-hmm. How, like, can you help us deal with them? Because most first years, I'm very lucky as I'm an older student, but they're 18 and they've been put in a situation where they can't get back to their parents. They can't get home. This might be the longest time they've spent away from their family and it's just being ignored and pushed aside and I just don't feel like that's the best way to go about it. I would like to talk about mental health in students yeah. because I think despite all of these platforms for communications and being able to talk to your lecturer, I, I feel like students, we still feel very alone at university and as a trigger warning, I am going to talk about the statistics um, and the current rates of suicide in students due to the pandemic and lack of mental health support for our young people. So suicide rates in students have rose by 56% in the last 10 years and every week since the start of September to the end of December, at least one student has died and that's eight students in semester one. We're now in semester two How many names and numbers is it going to be before the welfare of our students is taken seriously? Like I I went from being surrounded by my formal team, by so many students and teachers to being alone in a bedroom wondering when the next time I could go home and see my mum would be, when the next time I could meet my friends. It's my best friend's birthday today and I haven't seen him in four months. it's It's not nice, especially where students are getting blamed for the pandemic. Um. And all we want is someone to talk to. That's a lot of the reasons these things are being broken. Nine times out of ten, we're just lonely. We don't we don't want to feel alone and we don't want to be depressed in our rooms, especially our international students. All they want to do is go home. They're 18. They're alone in a country they didn't come from. They're far away from their family. Maybe for the first time they're on a waiting list for counselling or having to sign up to antidepressants because they don't know how to handle the the changes and the fact that there's next to no support I just I feel like it needs to be handled better I know my university are only now just developing their digital strategy and it's 2021 like I feel like I want to say that it's better late than never but if it wasn't late then student engagement would be so much higher than it is now 
but I, I don't blame the university completely. Um, obviously, the government has had a big play, a big part to play in how things have played out with the constant on and off of lockdowns, mm. the restrictions um, that apply to most, but not to some, the vague responses. HE students aren't even mentioned in some of the briefings. Mm. And obviously, I, I don't blame teachers at all. It's not up to them to ensure they get the training they need. The university should have pushed digital development from March 2020 to make sure that staff, when all this started, were comfortable. And it, it shouldn't take me and my other students to be teaching our teachers how to use Teams and Blackboard when we started in September and they should have been learning from March. We need better, especially mental health support. Um, we need clearer roadmaps that don't change every five minutes. We need support for international students. We need digital training for all of our teachers. So don't have to feel embarrassed or frustrated or stressed or overworked or undervalued. Like, I feel like they're blamed a lot for what's mm. going on. And at the end of the day, it's not the teacher's fault. They're just following instructions. Like, we're all just following instructions. And I just, I really want to stress that we need to stop blaming the teachers. We need to stop blaming the students. And we need to put the procedures in place to stop students feeling like they have no other choice towards the rates I said earlier mm. and to put the training in place to develop our teachers and our students the digital society that we're being pulled deeper and deeper into and just and just being kind to each other because at the end of the day as, as long as you're kind it can make a difference Obviously, I was on a different end in FE, and it's been a while since I've been a student in FE. Um, I didn't really need as much of the student support, but I feel like in FE, obviously, it could be because there's like less staff and less students. There was just more of a relationship between the teachers or the lecturers and the students, so they were able to be able to reach out. Like, for example, when I was in, in FE as a student I had what is known as a RAP tutor which is a retention and progression tutor mm. and she was constantly on my case if I wasn't <laughs> coming in or if I was like she was always there whereas now I have a PAT and that's a personal academic tutor mm. and I've recently learned it's not the same thing mm. but she just there's it's difficult to communicate because it doesn't matter if you don't turn up to your lectures it's, it's on you and I feel like putting I, I really don't want to insult any 18-year-olds because they are independent mm. and they are adults, but sometimes you just need someone to check in on you. And I feel like we're not getting that as HE students. And I just, I don't think, when you go from having someone in FE, like in a college, constantly checking on you to maybe going halfway across the world or even the country, and then there's no one around you, you can't go home, no one's checking in. I feel like it's definitely a shift that you're going to struggle with I, I don't think students should be studying completely independently especially at uni I mean especially with technology I mean I love technology and I really feel like it can enhance teaching and learning but it can't replace that teacher aspect it can't replace that group work the peer-to-peer -peer support mm -hmm. there's just so much there that it, it can't replace so I wouldn't want it to be independent one of my manifesto points that I want to do as um, VP at Education Democracy is to give that sort of role to the PAT so they're able to support the students but we do have you make change um, portals and stuff like that where they can upvote but mm. a lot of students don't see anything from it so they just don't do it don't don't do it
One organisation trying to battle this sense of isolation to better connect students with support through community building and peer-to-peer is Together All, a 24-7 safe online community for people who are stressed, anxious or feeling low with self-guided courses and resources. I spoke to their CPO, Fumia Lassan, about bridging the gap between formal counselling and day-to-day support. It's been pretty busy because we're seeing more and more people using our platform um, just trying to get the support that they need, either self-support or tapping into the power of community, which is really the foundation of all that we do. And we're seeing more people trying to share with peers and trying to get support from peers, which is a powerful thing in terms of trying to manage your mental health. So that's pretty much what we've observed in the last year as a business, that we offer a digital mental health support service. Now, it's not meant to replace um, traditional counselling. It's more complementary. But the slight difference with what we do is that the support provided to our members, so we call our users members, is pair-to-pair, which means we're connecting people with similar shared experiences and they can share in safe spaces. It's anonymous. But what makes this even more powerful is we're not just connecting people and leaving them to just chat without being supported. It's a platform that is moderated um, 24-7 by trained wall guides. And these are all professionals and they're there for a number of reasons. They're there to provide support if needed, but they're also there to help with risk management. So if for some reason, one of our members seems to be at risk based on what they have shared on the platform, our wall guides step in to give the support that's needed in the moment. And in some cases, if there's need to escalate then um, they would escalate just to make sure people are okay. It's anonymous, which means that it's a safer space to share. I mean, the thing that we know about mental health is I think society as a whole has come a long way because once upon a time, talking about mental health felt very taboo. That's changing right now. And I think more and more people are talking about it. So there's less stigma surrounding mental health. However, although more and more people are talking about it, um, more people are not necessarily sharing that they're dealing with mental health conditions because they still associate some stigma around it. Like it's very easy to go like, oh, I have a headache or I'm ill. People don't feel very comfortable saying like I'm dealing with a mental health condition. But the truth is like almost everyone, if you think about the fact that anxiety is a symptom of of a a mental health condition and almost anyone can resonate with having anxiety at some point or feeling stressed. So generally on the platform, no one really knows who you are. So you can actually share very freely. And that means that we're seeing more and more people talking about the things that bothers them. At the same time, there's an element of being able to support people that are going through things. And the two things that does um, for people that, are sharing, it creates that sense of being heard and knowing that you're not alone. And then for those who are supporting, there's an element where there's a purpose behind what you're doing. So you're not just using the platform to solve a problem, but you're also helping other people. And that also helps to improve mental health. With students and learners, as, as, as you call them, 
we're seeing more and more university students like talking about what they're dealing with, asking for help. Some are offering help. And we're seeing connection on the platform. The education space is um, a growing sector for us. So we're getting more and more people using Together All. And I mean, I, I look on the platform and people talk about very um, topical things. For some students, it's about trying to balance um, the pressures of studies and exams with everything else going on around them. I haven't quite found the right analogy in terms of mental health, but I think about the different stages of, of grief, right? For some people, like you're in denial, and when you're in denial, you're doing things that would help you through through that moment, and you get to acceptance, and with acceptance, like you're probably going like, okay, this is happening, what do I need to do? But it doesn't necessarily mean you're ready to share. You're just really trying to understand what's going on with you. You find similar cycles with people going through dealing with mental health conditions, where for some of them, they're just like, you know, at this point, I'm not ready to share, but I will take in everything going on with me. Or some people might go, well, actually, I'm not really ready to engage with community, but I want to engage with resources. I guess the key thing is just recognizing that there is support. And in some cases, it could be self-support through resources and courses, or it could be peer support through tapping into the power of community and also recognizing that sometimes around us, there are people, if we feel safe enough to talk to them, that we can lean on and just talk to them. For all of this week's guests, whether working in schools or universities or colleges, the pandemic has shone a light on the need to reconsider the division between academic success and well-being. Is there room for a more integrated approach? As you may imagine, a lot more emphasis now on, on, on the importance of you know, the, the, the slightly broader terms such as resilience and, and, and mental toughness as being a way to now, how do we measure this? Uh, and, and, you know, if we look at the um, amount of time outside of the classroom, I'm, I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm not that convinced there's been that much lost learning because I think especially the experience we've had with our schools, teachers have just been phenomenal. I mean, nothing really has shifted. They've worked that much, you know, that, even harder than what, was, what they were working with. Who thought that was possible in the first place? Head teachers and schools like we've certainly had the for, you know, good fortune of being employed into over the last five to six years have actually managed to keep up learning. So I'm not a big believer in the fact that has there really, unless we measure it, been that much lost learning. I think that's a discredit to, to schools and, and what they've done and how much they've just put in over the last six to eight months. Interestingly, however, what we have had discussions about very recently, which haven't, which have increased in consistency, is um, the notion of look, we need to make sure when we're coming back to school that our pupils are feeling okay that they're not feeling fearful, that they're not feeling anxious, that they're not feeling because they have been out for so long and it has been an incredibly frightening year, year and a half for all of us. So the, the, the attention is now going to, from what we've seen, the need to be able to make sure that pupils feel emotionally safe being back into school, that they don't feel overwhelmed now being back into the classroom with just a, the whirlwind of the last year. So, so, cognitively they're able to maintain the levels that they achieved before uh, this virtual virtual bonanza kicked in and as a result of that we've been fortunate to support schools to be able to say well look let's place a focus now on 
the areas such as like really helping them retain information, really helping them feel like they're not forgetting what they're learning, really helping them get back into managing their time into normal school days. And as a result of that, will reduce in the reduction of them feeling anxious and overwhelmed. So it's still the same approach. It's just, you know, I personally, with the schools that we've been working with, they've been flat out. And the other point I want to make is, and, and we can't forget the teachers who, who forgive me, I'm bashing my hand on the desk as I'm saying this because it's just like it's a message I've been wanting to get across that. We cannot turn a blind eye here to, to how our teachers are feeling around the world, not just here, because they've been on a treadmill anyway. They've now been on a treadmill on steroids um, over the last year and a half. So some of the conversations we're having with our schools say, look, let's really make sure that while we are looking after the, the health, the well-being of our pupils, ultimately, we really need to do the same for our teachers as well. So that's all now become at the forefront of, 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 of the discussion now, you know, along with the usual exam results and, and you know, uncertainties around what's going to happen in, in summer. From, from our standpoint, we've really encouraged the early identification of these challenges as early as in year six and year seven. Um, so there's definitely been definitely been a, a hunger and an appetite to really start to look at whole school approaches now to make sure everyone's ready and comfortable and, and ultimately gets through to the summer because I think we all we all need that summer holiday this year, don't we? I think this happens uh, across Wales, but I, I would like to see much more psychological input input in schools. I think um, school is a very safe environment uh, by default. Um, it's a societal environment and it's, a, and it's an environment that should uh, promote uh, well-being and should promote all of the coping strategies uh, that we know contribute to better well-being. Um, so I'm talking about simple exercise, but I'm also talking about having the access to a counsellor uh, quick, quickly and, and, and promptly um, so you can discuss some of your concerns that you have in life as a, as, as a young person. Um, and also, I would like to see much more interest, um, 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 despite I think um, teachers do have this interest and they do look at social emotional learning and they look at that aspect of psychology. I would like to see this emphasis much more from a policy perspective and a government perspective, supporting the uh, use of these innovations helping and training uh, these teachers to, to be more psychologically minded or, you know, um, uh, um, in the fact of they're not wanting to be that psychologically minded, having always that um, space that you can talk about your mental health, your well-being, what you're struggling with, what you're thriving with too, uh, mm. within, within, within the school system uh, as part almost uh, 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 part of the curriculum, if I'm honest. Everyone is quite aware of what's going on in the world right now. Um, chances are there will be some consideration or there would be some other options to help them manage what they're dealing, dealing with. So some of the things that people might struggle with would be um, the deadlines mm -hmm. and their workload. And it's great that they're talking about it in the community, but also um, I would imagine that if they were sharing with say the professors or with their teachers like 
there's a lot going on, you know, like I would love some flexibility in terms of like my deadlines. Um, I'm sure that there might be some flexibility Mm -hmm. from the side of the professor. And the reason why I say I I suspect there'll be flexibility is because this is not, in terms of everything that's impacting, that's making them anxious, it's not just limited to students, it's affecting everyone. Mm -hmm. But the key thing is to not suffer in silence. Yeah. For some people, when they think about well, when they think about happiness, and I think it's slightly more than that, I think it's really about the quality of your life across multiple areas. Um, I was listening to an, to an article, sorry, a pod, podcast or so, where somebody was saying that it's the human ability to thrive in adversity. But I think it's slightly it's slightly deeper than that because we don't always go through adversity. So I'm quite happy with the quality of life across different areas. Um, And I think that when I break it down to areas, it's just three areas where it's like the social, um, the physical and the mental well-being. And for some people, they might throw in the spiritual well-being where you're answering big questions like, what's my purpose? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? I I find well-being in edtech really fascinating because, you know, on the one side, you've got some of those tools that you mentioned. So, you know, you can anonymize support and have conversations where perhaps people would shy away from those things in sort of a face to face situation. Um, And we've sort of seen over the lockdown that some some students and some individuals have kind of flourished using remote learning and edtech where their well-being is 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 perhaps um uh better looked after in an individual sense so i'm just thinking about some people who perhaps um might have autism and 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 find that a sort of larger classroom environment more stressful um but then on the other hand you've got stories of um you know poorly designed edtech experiences um or learning experiences where it just doesn't serve how humans learn very well and can be very stressful as well so it's 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 a kind of very you know nuanced thing isn't it it's, it's not straightforward as you said and that, that it can both support or aggravate um people's well-being it seems um absolutely um i think um you know it's, it's a bit of what you say context is key so we may have developed uh, some edtech resources that were actually designed to think to be cooperated in a classroom environment or, or, or they assumed that a classroom, a classroom environment will be given. So therefore, we are losing many of the um, other aspects that are very difficult to capture sometimes in an intervention or in an edtech product about social interaction, about how we engage with the other person in a, in a, in a video conference environment. And I will give you some examples of my my current work. I'm I'm working at Kuth, and Kuth is a, um, a anonymous free service for mental support uh, uh, young people. And for instance, we know that being anonymous um, is something that helps quite a lot to help uh, disclose information that may be very difficult to disclose in another environment or in an environment in which um, you know your teachers. Or, or, or your GPs and things like that, not actually your identity and you wouldn't like to cover things that maybe like you're not sure yet to share. So mm-hmm. something like anonymity for well-being and mental health can play a massive role in the way that people disclose information and how we can work with that information in itself. So 
context is key and the way that, um, that we design that context inside of our educational technology product, um, it's, it's, it's very determined by the characteristics of that content. So I'm not surprised that many of the um, edtech tools that may have been deployed during the pandemic have actually not have the impact and the, and the, and the effect uh, in well-being that we, that, that we intended. And then there's also um, difficulties about designing something that caters for all, isn't it? You, you were talking mm -hmm. about neurodiverse populations and some ed products may not be actually be designed with these people in mind, not because um, um, they don't care about that population, but because that population is way more difficult to access, uh, maybe more difficult to engage in co-designing protocols, um, and actually maybe missing at the very end. Um, and that can cause quite a lot of distress if you have a diverse population in your classroom as a teacher, of course. We've just started working in, um, in the prison services mm. with uh, young offenders. Mm -hmm. And they are some of the most resilient young people I've ever met yeah. um, who, who have, you know, Either made either made some decisions that, that that they're working through and 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 whatnot, or have just been a product of just horrific environments that no one deserves to even be brought into. Yet they're some of the most resilient individuals I've ever met. The challenge they have isn't resilience. So often they get labelled as being not resilient enough to maintain uh, mainstream uh, success in academia. Hence why they've been kicked out of so many schools and referral units and have ended up where they are. And I think we've totally mismanaged that. I think we've totally misdiagnosed that. I think we've totally misinterpreted that. It's not the case. What they have lacked is the intellectual ability and the skill, because they've never been taught it, mm -hmm. to be able to succeed in mainstream school. Yeah. Now, if I haven't been taught that skill, and then I go home, and I'm, I'm in, in, in a gangland territory in, in, in parts of the inner cities, or I'm prone to county lines, or... I have come from a very troubled background. I need to. I need to feel important somehow. I need to somehow feel life's right for me. Mm. Now, if I can't get that in school, where am I going to get it? I'm then going to go onto the street. I'm then going to make decisions which are not right for me. So, I think as a nation, what we need to do is really begin to look um, at the at the process from completely the opposite angle that we have been so far. Unfortunately. We've managed to manage to now slowly and look, you know, I've long been doing this, just really taking us four and a half years to get the first one on board. But we've, we've fortunately been able to get the first young offenders unit on board to be able to say, well, look, let's let's not take a a, a slightly more you know wellness driven approach, holistic approach. Let's actually begin to upskill um, these these young people in what they have missed in school. Yeah. As, as the first point of intervention, to then be able to help them feel like when they have that piece of algebra in front of them or when they have that piece of uh, English in front of them or science, that they can actually take in the information and remember it. Um, and that's sort of something I've been sort of banging the drum about for years, saying unless we make that shift, we're still going to fall into this cycle of doom. And if there is one area of agreement, it's the positive impact of sleep and how this affects well-being and in turn supports learning. Uh, there are even times where it's the fundamental things that help you manage a situation. 
um, one thing that people talk about a lot is this whole concept of like taking care of your physical well-being. And we talk about exercise and how that's good. But one important thing that we don't really think about, and I think it's super helpful to everyone, including students, is the power of sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's giving yourself that space to like step back, take care of the physical, you know, give yourself enough rest. And that helps you to really create the space to think about a how you can get some help, who you should reach out to. Um, and potentially come up with a plan that helps you through the situation. The assessments themselves. So we, we we tend to we tend to we're now beginning to more refer to it as a diagnostic technology because it's adaptive. So the responses evolve and the questions evolve while the learner is completing the, the, the questions and the responses. It's taking in multiple factors such as whether they've changed their mind, whether they've hesitated, whether they've given contradictory responses because they don't want to feel like they're going to be judged if they turn around and say, actually, I can't cope under pressure, I begin to panic. So the machine learning element over the years with just the volume of data that we've been able to collect through this has enabled us to create an intelligent, uh, intuitive assessment diagnostic technology that ultimately is there to act as a coach um, and I think the job of education technology now is, is not necessarily to make life easier for the learner, um, but to make life and to make learning more accessible. We don't want technology to solve the problem because that's not the purpose here. The purpose here is to teach the student how to solve the problem for themselves. What we've been able to do with our technology is just be able to ask more prudent, better, more direct, subtle questions to help the learner identify through the ML what really is the either areas of strength that they want to build on or the, the, the bottlenecks, if you could put it that way, that are preventing them from getting to the next level of their exam results or the next level of their engage, engagement in class. Where we've looked at areas such as sleep is really trying to emphasize and, and portray to students and teachers and schools that ultimately, if I'm in year 11, and I'm sitting 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 exams, that my ability to retain that information, to process that information, to apply that information is in direct proportion to how much energy I have. So if we break that down even further, we've wanted to to ask subtle questions about about the sleeping habits about what they do before they go to bed, just to really re-emphasize the fact that, look, if they're glued to their phones and on social media right the way up to when they hit the pillow, that these are habits that they need to change. Because ultimately what they're going to do is prevent the body's natural, miraculous phenomena that is sleep. Remember the earlier example I gave about the autonomic nervous system and the fluctuation between parasympathetic and sympathetic activity? And the whole, the whole wonder of the body's biological rhythm that it just knows when we need to rest. And if we keep fighting that, um, which we do as a society in the Western world, we're so sleep deprived compared to the rest of the world because we consciously make an effort to fight it. So what we're trying to educate pupils to do through the initial uh, diagnostics that we do is really place an emphasis in key exam years, especially around the importance of sleep. We go so far as to say, well, look, you've got this piece of math to learn. So when we actually deliver the blended curricula within Plex and the learning pathways, it will simultaneously work with the pupil to help them improve their sleep while helping them improve their um, ability to not panic in in algebra and complex equations. So it's a side-by-side approach 
so the learner can see just how important their well-being is. And to me, sleep is the ultimate um, indicator of, of wellness and well-being because it's, it's how our body regulates. Right? Our brains work often faster when they're asleep, when we're asleep to when we're awake, because that's when we're organizing our information, when we're, when we're, we're getting ready for the next day. So, you know, and studies over the years have proven it's just very hard to execute on scale that an additional 15 to 20 minutes, 30 minutes extra a night does increase performance, either at the top end or the bottom end in the morning. That's all for this week. A huge thank you to our guests in this episode, to Bet for supporting this series and Form Assembly for supporting this episode along with Tez, and to you for listening. For all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations from our guests, it's the edtechpodcast.com. And this is our last episode in the What Matters in EdTech series two. So if you've enjoyed listening in, feel free to tweet us at Podcast EdTech and we'll share your messages. That's all for now. Have a wonderful week. Bye bye.